I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Honey Co. Every couple of weeks, we invite someone we admire for a chat in front of a small audience in our deli, Honey and Spice. Every speaker gives us the opportunity to cook food inspired by their cuisine for the audience to try. We sit back with a glass of wine and hear about the life made in food. This week, we're joined by the lovely Alan Jenkins. He's the editor of the Observer Food Monthly, the UK's most important food magazine. Alan came to Honey and Spice to tell us about his new book, Plot 29, a memoir. This book is extremely engaging, very special and very, very personal account of Alan's childhood in the 1960s in Plymouth, when he and his brother were rescued from a care home and fostered by an elderly couple. Alan is interviewed by Aaron Sarit Packer, who got really emotional during the talk. It's a very emotional subject. And they talk about how he came to write the memoir, why he grows plants from seed, and the joys he finds in sharing food and flowers with the people he loves most. Everyone, thank you for coming to one of our. Alan, would you like to tell us a bit what Plot 29 is? Okay, so I'll tell you what it isn't, what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a story of an old man who grows food and flowers because a kindly old man took him in when he was four years old and showed him how to grow food and flowers. And that's the book that I presented to Fourth Estate. And it was going to be a journey, it was going to be quite intimate and quite personal, and it was going to be. A diary of a year on a small piece of land that I share with a lady in North London. And there were some things intervened, which was that my life intervened. And I don't, I, I've always been very open, and I believe in talking emotionally. I, believe in, I was brought up in a sort of strange childhood of foster care in children's homes and secrets and shame in rural communities. And I don't believe in secrets very much. I'm not, I'm not saying that all secrets, I think some things are probably best left unsaid. But also, but I really genuinely don't believe in shame. And there were two things that coloured the book, which was one, that my brother had died. I'll, I'll point out the cover in a little while. And he died about two or three years before, and I hadn't really dealt with it. 
Uh, but at a small age, we had been brought up together in this in this house in Devon by this elderly couple. And the second thing that happened was that um, there's now, under European law, which will might disappear quite soon, there is the there's a freedom of information request where if you if someone has kept records about you, you can now access those records. And as long as the other people are dead, or as long as they, they'll redact out the information on the other people. And I realized that about four paragraphs in, I was writing the book, and, I was, and I, there were two things I needed that I knew I would do. I would start in summer. So it's a, the, the spine of it is a year in the life of a piece of land, and how that piece of land informs me, and how I garden, and how that's informed by my past. And I knew it had to start in the summer. It had to start with green growth and new life and that it couldn't start in December, which would be desolate and empty, because I, I knew that the story would, would take a turn, and I knew that it would become darker, and it would become a little more wintry and a little more cold sometimes. So I thought, if I start with that, at least I'll know where I go. And I ordered in my care records, and this box arrives, plain cardboard box. It just arrives in the post, I mean, I say in the book it should come with nuclear hazard tape. It should come with that yellow and blue tape, which they say where there's an accident happened, because you get... My, my stuff, I was 10 years in care. In fact, truthfully, I was in care from before I was born. But um, there are records of about 10 years, and then there's some separate records I discovered later. And they're everything that anyone ever said about you, they write down. And because there was no right to read it, they're incredibly unguarded and sometimes ungenerous in how they talk about you and it's, it was in the days when feral children we were feral children we were yeah, everybody was inoculated against you you were put into children's homes you were you were quarantined from normal like divorced women were quarantined for Christ's sake and death and in those days yeah there was a divorced woman in the village everyone would go it's like woo they would, she was like rampageous or something so kind of like kids who came anything that was other in Devon was to be avoided and I started reading this stuff and I started reading, it's a bit like caffeine you, you think oh, I'm fine like one coffee, two coffees, you're reading it and it's novelistic, it's literally like William Burroughs and Dickens and something 19th century Russian stuff and it talks about these two little boys and how I hate to see my brother hurt and it just, and you kind of connect with it in a way and it's and it's suddenly, it's like the third martini You've had like two martinis, and this is great. Of course I'll have another martini. And then suddenly you step through the window and you can't quite get back through that window into a place of safety and a place of okayness. It's like the, the fifth espresso, where you can boom, and then suddenly, ooh, I wish I hadn't done that. And so, and there were things in there that I truthfully wish I hadn't read, I suppose. Well, actually, truthfully, I wish I hadn't read, I, I know. But it became a book, and I decided that I, if this book was to be anything, it had to be open. It had to be unashamed, and it had to be raw, and it had to be as honest as I could possibly make it. And that's what I tried to do. So it's a really long answer it's to a, it's a, a good really answer. Short, short question. I think it kind of leads me into the next question, which is, obviously, when, when I heard you were writing a book, and you told us a bit about it while you were writing it, I was expecting something very foody. Because yeah. this is the way I would look at it. And I yeah. was expecting something that 
had to do with gardening and had to do maybe a bit with your personal life. And I think what you're saying about when you also start reading some of those records in the book, it really hits you really because it's strongly. So, because in yeah. a way, I don't want you to have read that isn't a sentence but if I can express yeah. that I, in a way I wouldn't want anyone to read that about themselves because I think there is an aspect of having elders talk about children that the children should never hear kind of thing of and it is such a personal thing and how how do you come to that decision to open something so personal up to other people to read okay there are two things one the I decided that it, it, it had to be, and because I don't carry any shame about it. And truthfully, the numbers on people like me, if most editors of national newspaper magazines or most editors in, in anywhere, they don't normally come from children's homes. They don't normally come from abuse. They don't normally come from... They come from nice families where things go well and they're, and they're kind of taken care of and they're supported through. And I think I'm a kind of... I don't say I'm like the Bruce Oldfield of, 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 but I think it's actually that it's important to have to be not a, I don't mean a standard bearer but to be honest and open about it I suppose that's all I say that's all it is really it's just to be as tender and caring and loving about it and I think in my head I decided that it would be there's a, I knew it by the fourth paragraph there's a line which says one minute I'm talking about broad beams and then I wrote this sentence which just said I think I learned to love from seed. It was the helplessness of seed. And it was that I, the urge to protect it, like I couldn't protect my brother, like I couldn't protect my sister. And I was aware that there was something that I could sort of tell this story. If it, if it hadn't had the gardening, I don't think I could have done it. Yeah. Because the gardening gives... I pull out of the story back into broad beans and life and nurture and caring for something. And, it, and truthfully... If you had spent a lot of money on psychoanalysis, which I did and made me very unhappy, I wouldn't recommend it unless it really worked for you. But it's that it's quite possible that my need to nurture helpless little things is because I didn't have an abundance of nurturing when I was a helpless little thing. And so, and I wanted to tell my brother's story. I, I'm an incredibly lucky person. I was born... There's a line, I found my Bernardo's records. I didn't know, I didn't even know I'd been Bernardo's. I mean, Bernardo's at two months old. And it says, it talks about things like, oh, skin, scurvy, which I didn't love. But then it said, um, oh, apparently N, which means apparently normal. You're like, uh, my spine was apparently normal. My genitals apparently were normal, by the way. It's not that that's an issue right now. But it, but it, it also said, um, appearance. It said contented. Which I think was a very interesting thing. And I just thought, what a kind of. I would want any two month old child who goes into Bernardo's to. And the miracle of to be able to find contentment. And I, and I feel incredibly lucky in my life. And I don't mean because I'm successful. I always felt lucky. Perhaps not when I was sleeping in strange, derelict buildings with odd men, but. <laughs> you know, it's like, but I always felt that I would be okay. I always, I I've always found love and goodness in things, you know. But also, truthfully, I was sort of born lovable, and that's it. And weirdly, there's a burden about that. And it sounds an odd thing to say, like the burden of the lovable. I don't want to sound like, you know, like sort of the burden of the pretty, but it's 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 not a burden because. But in children's homes. The kids who get taken out of children's homes are the... I talk about the Disney dogs. 
you know, if you're going to Battersea and you want to take a rescue dog, you will take the dog or the child that comes at you with wags your tail and looks at you eager for attention and for love. What you won't take, and that is the dog that needs you to take it, that you probably is a much harder task, which is my brother, who's at the back with a nervous tick, who'd been deeply unhappy, and as you went towards him, he would retreat from you. I promise you, you won't take that dog. You'll take the dog like me. You'll take the waggy tail, fluffy, grey and white, happy thing that will jump up on you and give you attention and love. And I would give you attention and love because I, I want it out. But also I was desperate to love. I was desperate to be loved. I was desperate to be held and touched and all those normal things. And I was desperate to be safe. And the difference is between my brother and I, that I felt safe and my brother didn't feel safe. And that the story is essentially the story of two brothers, as well as the story of a garden, as well as the story of me. It's the story of luck and no luck. And so, therefore, I, I had a, not a duty, that's a sort of, sorry, I was going to say wanky, I won't say wanky. I would say something else. <laughs> you can it's, say that. I can say it. But it's, um, I had a duty to tell it as openly and honestly as I can because the numbers are against people like me. The numbers are against people who've been brought up in care. Where, where the numbers are, prisons, prostitution, death, disease, addiction. The numbers are off the scale on all of those things. The odds are, you know, so to have a child who can string a sentence an adult who can string a sentence and to tell it I think it's an important thing sometimes and I don't mean I bear witness, that sounds wanky but, yeah, but, it, but I think it is important to bear witness sometimes and I think it's a love story this book it, it has leaves in it and it has food in it and it has hurt in, in it, there is pain for sure and there is disappointment but it, it's essentially a love story of someone who is impossible to love in a way for me it was like you know, and so the book wrote itself I I wrote it every morning and between five and seven and I only twice in a year made a note of what I would write next which is unheard of for someone like me someone like me will amass information they'll look at the quotes you'll, you'll download the tapes you'll listen to the thing you'll build a structure you'll know where you're going to go and I didn't I sat every day and, and I kind of waited for wind to catch the kite or I waited to pan in this thing and I would find something sparkly and I would chase it and it worked for me The book. it, it had its voice immediately it's a voice that I was very careful with and protected I think and I think it's an unusual book what worries me sometimes is people who come to me and say I want to buy this for my mother because it's because she loves gardening, but I want to kind of yeah, I almost want to sort of put like a kind of like one of those kind of like Prince stamps so that you get on hip hop records. Slight warning, but I think the, 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 I think there were two things with the book. Originally, there was going to be a picture of an assertion. On the, I'll come to that and I'll let you speak. I'm sorry. Um, there was going to be a picture of a flower, an assertion because. Our foster father gave us both packets of seed and we grew, we grew them. And I kind of looked at it and I felt very kind of, oh, I was sad about the picture. It felt like somebody's memorial. And partly because I was thinking of Christopher all the time. 
And I thought, this, if I looked at this thing, it'll be, or it feels like somebody's funeral. And I'm going to now find out which Bob Dylan song he loved that we're going to sing as the coffin goes. So they said, OK, well, we won't do that. And they gave it on black and they gave it on white and I didn't like it. And they were kind of slightly exacerbated by me because art directors know what they want to do with the book. So then they commissioned an illustration because apparently illustration is very on trend. If you go to Waterstones, you'll see a lot of illustrations at the moment. And again, it was illustrations of a tangled knot of nasturtiums. And then they were really slightly pissed off with me because I didn't feel it. I said, no, it's a gardening, it's a seed catalogue. I'm not feeling it. And I had this photograph, and this photograph, which you probably can't see, but what, what there is, is this is me, this is my brother. I'm five and a half, he's six and a half. Everything about this book is on the cover. You know, it, it's literally what it says on the tin. And it's, my brother's looking at the camera, and he's full of hope, and he's looking at the person who's, it's the first day with our new mum and dad. We have clothes that we've never worn. He's been bought a jacket, which is, a zillion times too big because it's been bought for a six-year-old and he's not the size that a six-year-old should be. And I'm not looking at the camera. I'm looking at him. And I'm holding his hand and I'm willing everything to be okay. And what this book is, me still willing everything to be okay. Sorry. It is very beautifully written and I'm going to make you read a couple of small parts. We plant an apple tree, a plum tree, gooseberry and currant bushes, just like Dad. Everything we sow grows lush like rainforest, as though its energy has been imprisoned and is now unleashed. The allotment is happy and so are we. But I can't bear to thin and throw the weakest tomatoes. Maybe I identify with their need, preferring to give them more light and food and love. I think this, this for me was where I kind of got into the book. So okay. it's not too far in, but I really connected to that aspect where you see <clears throat> food here as something that you can nurture but obviously in your life people are something that you can nurture even though you maybe didn't come from that place and I'm wondering how how you get to a place where you realize you can grow something where what does that feeling create for you D- does um, that make sense like how- yeah no no of course it's it's magic it was literally just a thing for me it was like I was five years old. I grown. I grown. I have in this. It's a small allotment I share with somebody. I grow food and vegetables, and I'm quite careful about what I do. And a lot of it is memory. A lot of it, like all food, all stuff is memory. And if you come from a childhood like mine, you don't have memories in the same way that I'm going to say normal people do. What happens is your memories have been given to you. I promise you, by your mother, by your friends, by your father, by your brothers, by your sisters. It, you you will grow up with remember when. You will grow up with people who have the same nose as you, the same eyes as you, or perhaps the same chin, or at least something. You'll grow up in a sea of recognition. And if you don't have that, and if you're kind of floated around and dropped and placed and don't feel that you belong in the same way, you have something else. And I grow on this piece of land two flowers. I grow marigolds and nasturtiums. And I had never thought about it. I thought I grew marigolds because they're companion planting. Everybody will tell you, yes, you grow marigolds because they do have like the good insects. I thought I grew them because they were bright and orange and beautiful and full of life and hope because orange is a kind of... Yeah. And I grew nasturtiums because they're kind of wild and slightly feral and a bit common. And I come from a background which is slightly wild and a bit feral and a bit common. And I remembered only in the writing of this book that I grow nasturtiums and marigolds because Dudley Drabble is 
man who took me in at the age of five gave my brother and I a packet of nasturtiums and a packet of marigolds. And I had a bare piece of land, like so big, really not very big. And I put these seeds in and they turned, this piece of land turned into colour. And it was this sprawling, greedy, needy, really kind of slightly vulgar flower. And that was, I identified with all of that and a bit kind of colourful and a bit strange and a bit... And it was a, that idea, and I only grew from seeds still, and I wasn't even aware why I do it. I thought I could do it because you buy these packets and they're hope. You buy, like, for two pounds, you buy a promise of something. You, like, in winter, you buy broad beans, and, it's, and you're buying the hope of summer. You're buying always into the future. You're, you're, you're making a bet on the fact that you'll be there, the fact that it will be there, and, and, and you can help it. And I kind of... So there's a piece of land, and then what happens is, I, so I grow rose, and then I kind of go and I look, and I, I, I will them. I literally... Sometimes I, do, sometimes I do nothing there. I just go there, and I just kind of, you know... I believe, oddly, that the piece of land knows me, which is... Very, I know it's slightly hippie bullshit, but it's the... Um, <laughs> I broke my ankle and I wasn't there for four months and it was like a cat. It took a long time for that piece of land to respond to me. And I'm good at growing and it's nothing to do with technique. It's that I have hands that things grow for. I create an environment where things want to grow. That's my job. I create soil and I give it lots of love and I, give it, I make sure... That the thing about the tomatoes is that what you're supposed to do with tomatoes, you plant something and then you take the four strong tomatoes and you bin the others. And I'm like, I don't know what I feel about like binning the others. Because yeah, that's what we were. I was brought up in the bin. And so what I would do is I would have the fourth thing. I think, well, they don't need me so much. They're fine where they are. But the attention must go to the vulnerable tomatoes. You know, I'll, I'll make sure that they get more food, more light, more love, more attention, more shelter. And it works. Truthfully... The only, you know, it's, it's not that like something's born with some seed and that's it forever, it's not it's just literally everything respo- there is not one living thing a thing that cannot even speak to you will respond to love and attention and food and care everything, it's like you cannot help and, if, and so I wait and these, this thing comes up and it's like, I talk about it as being like a baby turtle, you know like in David Attenborough right, so you have the thing and then this little head pops up mm-hmm. and it's kind of like this and, and you have to protect it because it's vulnerable at that point it's young and, it's, and at that time there's not much growing and the, kind of the, the slugs are out and the snails are out and like, they're all kind of out there and the pigeons are out and the kind of everything's out there and like oh we're going to fuck with the little baby turtles and my job is to make sure they get to the sea that's it, that's my job because after that they're fine so, what I, you know, so the beans I just need them to get to there they don't need me after that and I then I've got a completely different relationship with them. But at that point, when they are helpless, I look after them. And it's, you know, it sounds bonkers, but it isn't really. It's just... It's obviously some primal stuff. But I didn't know it until I wrote the book. All I knew is I grew from seed... And it wasn't because it was cheap. It wasn't too good. I don't care about spending... It was that I didn't like this thing. I remember coming to London where everybody just bought plants. They go, they go, duh, 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 and they have like a. I worked for the first job I ever had in London was for a plant nursery, 
And they, there was a guy who bought a white garden, came in and said, I want white. So we literally went and fitted him a white garden. And uh, towards the end of the summer, he wanted blue. And we fitted him a blue garden. And it all went in the waste. And I was like, ooh. And I was living in a squat. And I took everything home. If you had an azalea that began to die because it didn't have water, it would sort of go like that. People would bin it. And I would go, oh, I just need a bit of water. <laughs> So, so it was that, sorry. Because come and save our plants all yeah, the time, yeah. they die, you know, yeah, yeah. constantly. Just give them water and light. <coughs> Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to read the second part. That okay. <clears throat> Sorry, I do waffle. It's, um, I have no other way of telling it. If you start. Okay. 1964. Food isn't a thing for mum and dad. It's always fresh. There's always enough, but it's for fuel, not pleasure. There are no people dropping by to feed. There's no fish for somewhere so close to the coast except the occasional herring for tea, fried in oatmeal with its roe, my favourite thing. An occasional place for dad's ulcer, steamed on a plate with milk. There are homegrown runner beans, peas and potatoes. There's cake, ginger or parking, fruitcakes for Christmas, but best is Victoria's sponge. Dusted with sugar, two halves with homemade strawberry jam, a smaller slice for us. There are rice puddings, plum pies, peaches are tinned, so are pears, though we have a number of trees in the croft. Our tastes are muted and polite. Shrimps are my undoing, my damascene me moment. It's the Sunday school trip, a day on Paynton Beach. I'm aged maybe ten. The sun shines, the sun is inviting, the sea is warm. I never leave the seafood store. I've half a crown to spend. I mean to buy an ice cream, perhaps a ninety-nine. I've never eaten shrimps, but the smell is enticing. There are winkles, cockles, the sharp hit of vinegar. I've never had vinegar, never had chips, I've never had shrimps. I buy a small cone for sixpence. I peel each shrimp slowly, undress it, put it in my mouth. Sun and sand and sea. This is better than a ball's wafer. I order another cone, another after that, I'm hooked. 
is Kitty Harrowit. <laughs> so I think for, for us and most of the people we work with, we kind of have this aspect of remembering food as children, which I don't think every adult has, because sometimes we will sit with other adults and we kind of talk about, ooh, going to this restaurant or this stall, and the excitement isn't there. The right. people that tend to work at Honey & Co. tend to have this huge excitement about things they remember, flavors they remember from childhood. And I didn't know when I was reading this part, but it spoke to me really strongly. And then later on you mentioned shrimps again with the family yes. you find. And I thought that connection, that aspect of having food as a connection between you and people that maybe well, I think you didn't you even on, know were... You hold on to things that are precious. And you hold on to things which taste of care. There's a story in the book that it's. Um, can I leave Please, you can speak as okay, much so, as Okay, so, so, so there's, a, there's a thing which is that, um, which is the end of one of the chapters, and um, it's the last day of El Bulli. El Bulli at that point was the greatest restaurant in the world. And Don Perignon decided they would fly in 50 people. You know, billionaire silicone investors and a journalist or two. And they flew us in by private jet. They helicoptered us into this thing like Apocalypse Now. And there's 50 courses and there's 50 things and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm sitting at this table opposite Boogie Girl from, you know, sorry, Roller Girl from Boogie Nights, a Hollywood actress and stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm there and we're eating this meal and I suddenly realised my face is wet. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's that? That's odd. You know, I only just noticed it was wet. And then I realised that it wasn't just wet, I was crying. And I thought, fuck, that's not what look I'm going for. I'm sitting like, yeah, I'm sitting like with you. I don't want to cry. I'm like sophisticated. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I belong here. You know, I belong with you know, the guy who owns the first guy to buy to Facebook. You know. And I realized that I was in this room and the room just went. And I had this image, like a palpable image, which was of Lillian, my foster mother. And I saw the dress. It was yellow and black. And I saw the brooch, and it's blue, it's a butterfly. And I'm sitting on the porch, and I've been there not very long, and she's podding peas. And I think it's the first peas I would ever taste. And Adri is a genius, he knows how to extract flavour. And the peas that I had tasted of my mother, and they tasted of safety. And I realised for me, that's peas, I love garden peas, it's not just that they taste fresh, but they taste of home. And it's, that's a big thing for me. Sorry. I think in this aspect, I was hoping you would speak about this because I wanted to kind of also ask about your life now, about editing a food magazine, yeah. about being around people that are obviously passionate about something they do. In a <clears throat> How do you find in your professional life that you continue this kind of story of growing, of evolving, of nurturing stories and people? Because I can't write about things that I don't care about. So the, the reason why my magazine works, and I think it works, but that's, obviously everyone has their own opinion, is because there is not one story that's ever gone into my magazine that has not gone through a rigorous... I, like I sift it, like I'm, a, like I'm a sandpit, and it kind of drops in here, and I kind of watch it and watch it and watch it, and it kind of goes there. And I think it, people say to me, like, PRs come to me, and they go, how do I get stuff in my magazine? I say, I don't know. The only quality, the only thing I ask for in my magazine is it good. It's not like, has it got a machine behind it, whatever it is behind it. And I also think my job is to support people who may not have, who don't have 
a machine behind them, who don't have, who haven't called Jory White or whoever all these people are anyway, you know, but don't have like a machine to make them, don't have a story, a narrative already written. What happens? They come to you with this narrative. They're slightly lame sometimes and they're not very well written. So what I do is I just wait for the story. I wait for something that needs support. And my job is, and nothing will be there that's not good. And I will tell stories. We do a thing at the moment called Classic Cookbook, and they're books that are beautiful, uh, but they have no pictures. And they were written by people who cared about it, but they're not part of... Food is now this enormous, excuse me, fucking lifestyle thing. I'm sorry I said that. But, it's, but it is, it's part of lifestyle. If you see a Saturday newspaper, it will go, food, food. And it's that um, if it's good, because food is also about nurture and sharing at its best. And it's also about flavours. And also, if I go to Spain, if you go to Santiago, the most Christian place on earth, and you buy a tart from the nuns and they pass it through the thing, it's made with almonds. Almonds means it's Jewish. Almonds means that the Moors were there and the Jews were there. And I, I can go to any street market or any market anywhere in the world and you can tell who has been here when. Food is like a gateway. It's, it's only there to tell you a sort of history. So the story with the classic cookbooks is just that there are these books that get forgotten. And they're mostly truthfully written by women who are kind of like this kind of sarks of... Sorry, Sark, James Sark was a woman who kind of like went down the Nile. And they were voyage of discovery. My job is to tell stories. But not to tell a story because someone wants it, not so, but because I think it has... And sometimes I don't write it. I, I literally once travelled to Peru to something that I thought... And I didn't like him, the guy, and it sounds awful. And I just thought, I can't tell this story because it's not... There's something not right there for me. And because I write about emotions, my magazine, there's emotions in it. You can kind of see it, I think. I care about every comma that goes in that, on that page. I care about every caption that goes on that page. I care about every element. There's nothing that goes through that I don't think I've done my best for. And sometimes, you know, like, shit happens. It isn't always as good as you want it to be or how you think it's going to be. But I believe that, what, that food, if it's to mean anything, is to have history and to have caring and to have culture and to tell stories of people who's whose voices aren't so simply and obviously heard, I think. Sorry. And just as a kind of interest of mine, in terms yeah. of uh, of perks of a job like you have. Well, I mean, you're, you're, I mean you're working in London and everything is here, apart from access to everyone, because everyone wants to be... So what's the best things that you can get out of your job? <laughs> Actually, um, <coughs> quiet. So what happens if I walk into a restaurant... It's, so what will happen is you'll, you'll sit there and it's like, I promise you, this sounds utterly mad. There are in kitchens, there are photographs of people like me. And so what happens is you choose the thing that you want to eat and you're careful with it. You kind of do it. And then the surprise dishes will just come and come and come. The best thing is I don't go to new so much. Everyone wants to go to new. And I, I always try to tell people, go to the old places that people have neglected. It's a bit like the book. It's a bit like the classic cookbooks eat somewhere that's sort of slightly fallen off the radar they're still doing I promise they were on the radar because they did something good I promise you if they still exist they have to be doing something good don't just pop around to Old Street or I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Old Street or tattoos or whatever it is be it if I go to I don't know some small little place somewhere in some other country 
a way to also, I mean, this is a guy who's like sort of 60 years old. He's incredibly proud of his job. His job is basically just to deliver you something that he believes in. And he doesn't need to tell you that he's not really a waiter, that he's kind of like more interesting than that, and you know, that actually, truthfully, he's rather be an actor. He just wants to deliver something good. So I tend to, I tend to go to the same places, where somewhere where I feel kind of comfortable, where I can kind of just, yeah. There's insane poke, but truthfully, I get boxes of stuff, and I kind of feel embarrassed about the stuff that arrives. And I kind of, we had we do a thing. I do. I judge the Easter Bonnet competition at Age Concern. Age Concern in King's Cross gets is the I can promise you the best fed Age Concern. <laughs> we send stuff. You know, the cookbooks go to this people called Brigade who who teach homeless people apprenticeships. You know, I don't need that stuff. I cook from about four cookbooks and I don't really cook from them because I I've been cooking since I was twenty. I was a single parent at twenty for two kids. And I cook the things I know. And what I do is I buy, I look at something. I never go in with a recipe. I go to a shop and think, oh, I'd like to look for that. What am I going to do with that? And then I know what I'm going to do with that because that's, I'm not going to do three sauces. I'm not going to do fine dining. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to cook it as simply as I can for the flavour. And that tends to be how I eat. That's why I That's why eat you come to With us, you, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, go, I just want to feel at home. Yeah, but obviously, I, yeah, if someone says to you, do you want to go by private plane to the last night or balloon or helicopter you in, yeah, you, you'll go, but you, you hope you won't cry. Because <laughs> no one wants to cry there. If we go back a second to yeah. the book, you change your name a lot. Not, not you yeah. change it, but no, 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 as the book progresses, yeah. your name changes. And as a person that works in the press now, and yeah. for many years as well yeah. in the press, and you're putting your name to the book here. Did you have any qualms about which name to put? Have you ever had no. any kind of... Okay, so, so the story was, I was, it was the thing where you realised you were lucky and you were loved and you weren't loved. So Dudley and Lynn Drabble took us on <laughs> and we were five and six and my brother and I were together for the first time and he was, we were happy and I would like sit and we would tell each other stories. We just couldn't believe our luck. We had a dressing gown, literally a dressing gown. You would like, it sounds like mad, but a dressing gown, well, that was like, wow, man, we've got a dressing gown. We didn't have dressing gowns in children's clothes very much. But about three weeks in, and it's in the records, Dudley t- talks about me as Alan Peter. My name is Alan Peter Jenkins. And within three weeks, he's changed my name to Peter. And it's a thing that people do. If you take a rescue, you might change the name. And it was particularly encouraged in those days. And it wasn't encouraged. And they didn't change Christopher's name. And a couple of years in, they called me Peter Drabble. Their name was Dudley and Lillian Drummond, and they didn't <coughs> call Christopher. And it was partly because he didn't want to, but I've had young kids. Young kids don't make those decisions, those huge decisions, you know. It should have been two things. There were two options. One, if he didn't want to change his name, you tell him why it was important, why it was important that he was, he belonged, <coughs> you know, like he was part of this thing. We were this family. And naming is a thing. It's a really powerful thing because there's two things that happen. You create a space for someone to grow into something and you take away something of what they were. And it's kind of interesting. You shave part of their past and you create something new. And I shouldn't have allowed it, but I was like seven and I didn't think about it. And it's like there were three Drabbles in the house and one Jenkins. I was kind of proud of it, but confused by it. And so that when we were at school, we were brothers who not only didn't look alike, but we did, you know, the only brothers that didn't look alike, but had different names. And we were incredibly different. 
he was brilliant at sport laser eye for bat and ball and any of that stuff and I was a bit shit at all that but I was good at school something that had been kept repressed and then give it a bit of sun again. and so I was Peter Drabble and there's, there's two pictures in the book of this boy who arrives who's this boy and then there's suddenly Peter Drabble at 11 and you kind of look at this kid he's like Hitler Youth I don't mean that in a bad way I love this kid I nurture this kid I have no shame for him he's a Chinese city built on marsh in like two years it's like he was what he was and I got expelled from school so what happened is they kept talking about their disappointment with Christopher it's these boxes full of toxic disappointment it's full of bills Christopher wanted a bike it was the year when all kids at that age where you all get a bike I think you're about 10 or 11 and the other kids all got red racing bikes five gears ten gears derailleur you know drop handlebars Dudley bought Christopher for Christmas Dudley was they were a very middle class family as you might be able to survive um, they bought him a second hand ladies bike which he repainted because it was worn and the miracle was Christopher loved this bike he had he loved it it was like a bike he could get away he could be where he could be away, he could be who he wanted to be. And I kept thinking, really? What am a fucking green lady spike? What's wrong with you? Like, Ten. I had a sense of like my own worth and right and wrong. I had quite a sense of justice at the time, over-examined. Yeah. And in the box is Dudley's receipt, invoice, for the two pounds for the bike and the seven and six for the paint. And I kind of... And I love this man. I... What needs to be said is this man's a colossus. This man gave me safety. This man gave me all the things that I know. And well, not all the things. I think I was. I had a strong core, and I think I do have a strong core. But I kind of wish he hadn't fucking claimed for every present he ever gave a child who lived with him. Like for Christ's sake, they sold their house for sixty thousand pounds in like nineteen fifty nine, where it was like you could buy, I don't know, Cyprus or something. Yeah, and it, was, and it was kind of odd. So there was two things. So one thing was the name. And so they wanted rid of Chris. They were going to, like, part us. And we were, like, pots. We were two. We came as a pair. We might not look alike, but we were a pair. You know, like, like those dogs that people have on mantelpieces. Yeah, and it was the... Um, and I can't bear the fact that they wanted a dumping because he wasn't bright. Or how they, in the way that they wanted him. What it was, people need reward for their good acts people can't help it what you do is you take something you do some good and you need reward and and that's obvious in a way so they didn't get rid of Christopher because they were persuaded not to and they they didn't adopt us because they was, they'd lose the money from the foster fees but what they did was as soon as he was 14 they pushed him into the junior army Christopher had gained a grade a year, every year. It was like a miracle, this kid. And he loved farming. He would go to the farm. He would cycle to the farm, and he would just be part of this farm, and he wanted to go to agricultural college. And Dudley said no. Yeah, and it was, it was obviously it was over. And we didn't even know. We just knew something had happened. We knew we were on lilos out at sea, and it was mist, and it was suddenly cold. And summer was over, and it was all gone. And the idea was that we could only be a family if we didn't live there. And... Christopher would go into the army. He wanted to go to the RF, but Dudley had been in the RF, and Dudley kind of somehow wouldn't allow him the RAF because it was like the RF was him. It was like it had to be the army. And 
I find that difficult. I still find I'm di- still digesting that. I'm now seeing a therapist. Yeah, I, I'm finding that difficult because I love this man. I swear I love this man. He gave me safety, but I kind of despise that bit. Anyway, I went to boarding school, got a scholarship. Suddenly, Christopher's a boxer in the army. I'm some the only scholarship kid in a school of kids who own Chile. And, like, yeah, yeah. and I got expelled. Got expelled because we, I met some girls on a train and we went orienteering, though it wasn't really orienteering. I got expelled. And they didn't pick me up. I was 14. And Peter Drabble was expelled and all the other kids came with their big cars and their things that go back and their big, the early Range Rovers like, woo. And there wasn't a little Fiat 500 came. There was a social worker came with a tie and a kind of long hair. They all had long hair. In that car journey, and they just said, they can't do it anymore. I'm sorry. It's like over. It's too, you're, it's too difficult. You're too much to ask. And I thought, oh, fuck. Really? And in that 12-minute car journey, I dropped rabble. And I became Peter Jenkins. After a while, I thought, well, who the fuck is Peter Jenkins? Who is it? Like, I still have a sister. I have a sister who I met at this time who I love very much. And she calls me Peter. Lillian wouldn't speak to me for 18 years. I married a mixed-race girl. That was impossible. And they hated anything mongrel. They never met my kids. They'd have been brilliant. They, were, they, they weren't very good. That's not true. They were quite good parents. They weren't very good at loving or touching or all of that other stuff that people normally need. But you were safe. And that's everything, truthfully, everything. And, um, and I decided I would drop Peter. And I'll tell you one quick story, which was, if, if that's okay, which was that um, I needed a long-haul passport. I'm 30 years old. And I go to get my birth certificate, and I don't exist. Alan Jenkins doesn't exist. The guy said, well, you're adopted. And I went, no, I know the caste system. Sorry, I didn't say I know the caste system. That was in my head. Brahmins, people like most of you in the room and some other people. And then there's like people like me, the kind of Dalits. He said, well, if the date's right, you must have been adopted. And so I went to this, went to the records. And what I haven't told you is I met this guy called Ray Jenkins, who's a Pentecostal preacher, and all very odd. It's all in the book. And I'm scared by him. But, and I found out that Ray Jenkins had adopted me. He wasn't my father. And I thought, how can he not be my father? That's, he must have married my mother. So in my lunch break from Esquire magazine or wherever the hell it was I looked back through the marriage registers and found Ray Jenkins married Sheila Irene Beale it's my mother's name the first time I'd ever heard it and it was like huge like three words like mum and dad like I love you there are, there are words which are tiny which are like black fucking holes I promise you they are at times they have the ability to like stretch out and like blooms envelop you and you kind of like walk in them and you're separating and you're different and I read Sheila Irene Beale and it was my mother cafe waitress 19 and I thought one more step let's look for Alan Peter Beale and I went to Alan Peter Beale and there I was he said father dash but it was spelt with two L's and I kind of, you know, I, I'm fine with mutable personalities. I believe in reinvention. I love the fact that people can literally survive anything. And I love the fact that people can come and be who they want to be. That's what I love about London. You can, 
And what I sometimes mourn about Devon, who your father is sometimes, not always, but mostly. And you can come to London, it's like, no one cares where you came from, what they care about is what do you want to do? What is it? What do you, what, what's your story? And I thought, I don't know that I ever want to meet Sheila, and I don't know that I ever will, but I might take an L, because Jenkins seems weird. Like I, All he is was like this weird Pentecostal guy somewhere who like stood in the thing and talked about hell. Anyway, whatever, it's not, it's in the book. And, um, and so that day I became, not that day, it took me a little while, I decided to add another L. And uh, oddly, Alan Jenkins with two L's is different to Alan Jenkins with one. And Alan Jenkins as a child was different to Peter Jenkins. And Peter Drabble was slightly different. They're all the same person, but we feel slightly... You, you do, I promise you, feel slightly different shapes. And all I wanted to do was take back the pieces of me that had been shaved off, and I claim them back to me. And if I have one thing about the book, it's the last thing I'll say, I think, is that this book is a lament for me. And this is... It's, it's a widow's song at the heart of it somewhere. And it's a woman in black who's standing on a key calling for her husband who went down at sea. And this book is my story about my brother and I call his name and I do it with pride. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Is that okay? That is lovely. It's a, lot, it's a lot to talk about. And I was a bit trepidatious before Sorry. how you would speak about it um, no, easily because I would get emotional. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not my story. <laughs> uh, we're going to eat some food. We're going to eat uh, a lot of vegetables just to try and represent a bit of the allotment. Uh, we've got some asparagus and a lot of peas and broad beans and corn. And um, Bridget and Christina will happily serve you if you would like to radishes grab in a second. Allot- radishes, radishes from the allotment to so make sure you grab a radish from the actual allotment. <laughs> no, we wanted everything to be from the allotment, but you know. If Alan could produce enough for Honey and Co. to cook with, it would be quite nice, but I don't think uh, the production is at that level quite yet. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan, for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. What you gonna do? Because the people may have a What you gonna do? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Honey and Co. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download, so make sure you are subscribed to us on iTunes and please leave us a nice review. This show is produced by Hester Kant with recording assistance from Hannah Phoebe Bowen. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list via our website honeyandco.co.uk or follow us on our social media at honeyandco. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 